Aber die Tragödie ist jetzt vorbei. The tragedy is now over. And as I said those words, I looked up and there sitting in the front row, the great governing mayor of West Berlin, uh, Willy Brandt. And the tears were absolutely pouring down his face. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. This is the second part of our conversation with Major General Sir Robert Corbett, who is the last commandant of the British sector in Berlin. We join the conversation as I ask what were the British Army's plans in the event of a Warsaw Pact invasion of West Berlin. We also talk about the momentous night of the 9th of November 1989 and a fascinating tale of a situation which, if handled differently, could have sent the history of that night in a very different direction. Sir Robert also recollects his experience at the Checkpoint Charlie closure ceremony and at the Tag der Deutschen Einheit, when on the 3rd of October 1990, the two Germanys were officially reunited. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help us grow the number of listeners and get new guests on the show. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter. You also bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're preserving Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome back Major General Sir Robert Corbett to our Cold War conversation. I wanted to ask you what the plans were if the Soviets invaded West Berlin. Oh, my God. Well, um, I mean, the Allied garrisons in West Berlin had plans which coordinated their, their operational tasks around a series of what you might call urban fortresses. And, and as you probably know, urban warfare is absolutely the most difficult type of war uh, of, of fighting that you can possibly envisage. It's hugely expensive of manpower. And um, so what I think I would always have said, that understanding the difficulty of urban warfare, that what would have happened um, in the event of a Cold War crisis of the kind that you've just described, is that there there were 10,000 men in the Allied division in West Berlin. They would have given a powerful account of themselves. And what that would have done, we all hoped, was to be able to win time. And such time could well have been invaluable in giving the politicians and diplomats some kind of a breathing space in which to seek to de-escalate a terrible situation. And in doing that, so to prevent a third world war, it was as serious as that. There were one two interesting aspects of this. Like, for example, if the crisis, if, if uh, um, the situation was developing badly and tension was rising, what were we going to do about our families? 
uh, what we, you know, if we started to withdraw them, um, which we would have wanted to do, then we had to be very careful not to panic the West Berlin population. Uh, and eventually some of our families would have remained in the cellars of the British military hospital as it happened. But there was, that, that was an, you know, just one angle of this whole thing. There were 380,000 troops in the group of Soviet forces, Germany. Uh, subsequently, that was renamed in my time as the Western Group of Forces. And they organized this lot into 20 ground force divisions. And they had an air army. They, a lot of these people, about 60,000 of them, were in close to, uh, in the immediate vicinity of Berlin. And within, you know something, Ian? Within a 20-mile radius of the center of the city of Berlin, there were as many Soviet troops as in the whole of the British Army of the Rhine put together. And these were deployed in, in, I think it was one motor and three tank divisions, supported by a front-level artillery division. And there was a separate motor rifle brigade in Karlshorst. And then, on top of that, uh, there was the East German, the National Volksarmee, uh, who had combat troops, I think, based in East Berlin, and also units of the Border Command, the Grenztruppen. And there was a brigade-sized motor rifle formation, which was the Felix Dzerzhinsky Guard Regiment, and that was responsible for the protection of all the government facilities in East Berlin. East Berlin then, of course, being the capital of the GDR. And it was very interesting for us to be able to discover, after the opening of the war and the collapse of the East German regime, you know, how they were going to go about subjugating West Berlin during the Third World War. It was called Operation Center. Did you know that? I wasn't aware of the operation name, but I was aware that some of the plans had been found. It would have uh, fallen largely to the National Volksarmee, supported by the Soviet by the Soviets. And the plan was regularly updated. And the way they were going to do this was they were going to send a huge armored thrust down the line of the Arvis motor race track from uh, the entrance into West Berlin off the Autobahn, straight down to the center of Berlin uh, to a place called the Unterbahnbrücke and break apart. It's a good plan, actually. Break apart the, the three uh, allied garrisons and to separate the one from the other. Uh, and while at the same time capturing the centers of communication uh, using the airborne regiment, uh, using helicopters from uh, Lenin. And, um, you know, we, we, we would have given a, a good account of ourselves, but we would all, we would all have been um, to the top. Simple as that. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I, I mean, I interviewed a, a squaddy who served in West Berlin in the 1980s a few episodes back, and he was very, very much similar to, to what you said. He's, he was under no illusion as to what the odds were. If it had happened, he would have made them pay as high a cost as possible yeah. to, um, to, to get through. And that's right. And two things concerning Operation Centre. The first uh, is that we should all um, understand and remember uh, that the training, most particularly within the National Volksarmee, the East German Army, for Operation Center, the investment and the subjugation of, of West Berlin, training for that continued right up until the summer of 1989. That makes you think, doesn't it? And secondly, and it was being updated as well, secondly, and we discovered as soon as we could get across, once the war really broke open, 
the abandoned armored fighting vehicles, armored vehicles particularly, uh, of the Fox Army were fully bombed up with their first and second line of ammunition. And that's normally something which an army will only do when it's preparing for war. Makes you think too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so so they were ready to roll at very short notice then? They were, but of course they were completely rotten uh, to the core, which we hadn't understood and realized at the time how awful morale was on the other side of the war. So, I mean, as soon as it was apparent which way the wind was blowing, uh, the East German army just literally melted away. And uh, the troops, I think, took themselves off, except for the very hard line ones, made it for home and and the whole thing became a complete completely hollowed out busted flush but at the same time it's i think of interest and important to understand that the training and preparations that they were making until that whole movement began to happen were actually in earnest and and as i say that that the training and, and the preparations were going on till so late on in the turn of events is i think really quite um it's quite salutary to think of that now you know, when, when you think about it, I, I remember I used to fly the Berlin Air Control Zone. The RAF had two light aircraft, and they used to take me up because I was always seeking to get an understanding for what was on the other side. And we would fly around the Berlin, 20 miles out, Berlin Air Control Zone, and fly over over the acre after acre after acre of Soviet tank sheds. And many of those tank sheds, the roofs were in terrible state of repair and had lots of holes in them. You have never seen so many tanks in your life. And when you think about the quantity, which would have, you know, we'd have been outnumbered more 10 to 1 at the very, Mm. very least. But what I think I would say is that because of the, the character of urban warfare, I think we would have given them an awful lot to think about it. And when you think about the last that last great battle for Berlin, that cost the Soviets 300,000 casualties. And they were, oh, they were fighting an, an army, effectively, of, of the Volkssturm, the old men and, and Hitler youth and things like that. So I think that is a reminder of the extraordinarily costly business that urban warfare is. So what we would have done, we'd have been there to gain time, but we would have all been for the chop. And presumably you had an estimate as to how long you could hold out. Yeah. Ten days. Ten days. Maybe more. I I wasn't expecting it to be that long. Yeah, I reckon. Between a week to ten days, I think. I really do mean that. I mean, you know, if you look at the history, if if you have a, a, you know, if you make any kind of study of urban warfare, you you see what an incredibly difficult business it is for the um, for the opposition. I, I remember once doing a, um, a clearance job on Imba with the second battalion of the parachute regiment, and I promise you, the whole of that battalion disappeared inside what was a relatively small village. And once they were in there, you'd lost them, and it took about three hours to get out the other side. And that was just a small village. Yeah. And an extremely well-trained battalion. So you see what I mean? It's not, you know, we we would have given a a good account of ourselves, but all we could have done was to gain time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I think about it. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's re- that's really interesting. And the the plane, the light aircraft you were flying in were chipmunks, were they from Gatow? <laughs> yes, they were. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they were. I think I think that the station commander at RAF Gatow, Phil Wilkinson, was always very happy when he got me back in one piece. Actually, <laughs> you know, because they they, they had um. Uh, on more than one occasion, things happened to those little chipmunks. There was one that had a had a bullet hole through the propeller boss and that sort of thing, you know. And it was so funny because the the, the excuse was if we were, had an engine problem or something, we were forced down in, on the wrong side of the line. Uh, I was supposed to say to the pilots, "Be oh, I was just doing our crew training." Well, for God's sake, <laughs> what the British commandant was doing our crew training for? I don't know. Oh, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Anyway, it didn't happen. I was all right. But, yeah. I mean, it was a lovely photograph of me climbing out of the chipmunk and everybody looking highly relieved. <laughs> but I've always been a believer in trying to see for myself. And so I spent yeah. a lot of time in East Berlin for that very yeah. reason, actually. Well, I think there's nothing like, you know, I, I, I do study a bit of military history myself, and there's nothing like walking the ground. You cannot get the feel from a map or even from no. photos. No. There's there's nothing like yeah. actually seeing it personally. Now I I understand that Bricksmiths use these chipmunks quite a lot as well. They they certainly did, and the aerial photography and so on was was very was very yeah. useful. So uh, as commandant, you were visiting East Berlin. What what was that like? Because you didn't get there in '61, did you? I'd like to tell you very quickly, if I can, a, a story. Very early on, um, I was invited with Susie, my wife, to the. Farewell service for Cardinal Meissner, who was the Cardinal Archbishop, the Catholic Archbishop of all Berlin, ganz Berlin, um, in the in that beautiful St. Hedwig's Cathedral, which was his seat, as it were, in the Schandamermarkt, in central part of East Berlin. And we, we were shown in with great honor and seated in the front row and all the rest of it. And just before the service began, it was a wonderful, great round cathedral, in through a small side door came... I have five or six men wearing dark suits and overcoats and things, uh, and were seated opposite us. And during what was a beautiful service, they just sat there looking all glum, played no part at all. Beautiful service in which a lot of people actually were in tears because they didn't want the archbishop, who was much loved, to go. Uh, and just before the end, the priest came and took these five men out through the side door, and we never saw them again. We, by contrast, went out through the main doors, and, and were mobbed, literally mobbed, by a crowd of well over a thousand people. Who would what they would do is they'd come and press up against you, and there were a lot of police there, a lot of people's police. But they'd press up against you, and they were saying, "Please keep coming to us. You are our only hope for the future." And eventually, we managed to get a, get away. You know, with them sort of tapping on the car and everything. Uh, and I remember, and I reported this to my superiors, but I remember thinking at the time, if this really is the attitude, the true attitude of the people uh, of East Germany, then I just wonder whether this regime is going to endure or not. And that was the first time I ever had any inkling uh, that things were not the way, you know, we might well as external observers have considered that they might be. That was a very interesting experience and, and, and a very solitary one indeed. And there were others. Uh, there were other. Do you want me to tell you about another one? Yeah, yeah, please do. This happened rather later, later on. There was a, a young, I was always trying to get a feel 
for what was going on on the other side. A youngster, and I used to try always to interview escapees from the east into the west. Uh, on this occasion, um, it was in the summer of 89, a young fellow from Niedersachsen who was actually a motor mechanic. He'd been recalled for the 40th anniversary celebrations of the GDR, and he had made a run for it and come across the canal into the uh, American sector. And I asked General Ray had a, if I could go down and go and talk to him, interview him. And Ray said, yes, of course you can. So I went and sat with this, this young man, fine young fellow he was, actually very intelligent. And I remember saying to him, you know, what was it that made you throw away your weapon, risk being drowned or shot or both, why did you do it? And he said, we had, we were speaking in German, we had no uh, hope for the future. We were completely unable to travel. We had no sense of freedom and, and really effectively we had no hope for the future. And I can remember him looking at me and he said these words with a kind of fire in his eyes, wir wollten raus, wir wollten raus, we wanted out. And, uh, and then he said, and this is very amusing in a way, he said, what is more for a whole year? I'd been looking for a banana and I couldn't find one. So he said the German equivalent of a word that begins with F. I said F. <laughs> and, and I went. And I thought, again, you know, what, what were these things? Were these things straw in, straws in the wind? And it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight to realize, of course, that these were really, um, when you take them together, were signs that things were anything but happy and anything but stable on the other side of the wall. But actually, they were really, when you take them together, they were the harbingers of, of the great change that was to come. And these small things, you know, when you look at them like that, it's really, uh, to me, it's very interesting thinking back to that sort of thing. It, it is, and it is easy to look at these things with hindsight, but I, I guess they were the, you know, the, the signs of that frustration that was building up amongst the East German population mm. um what what did london say when you reported these things back to them well i i had um two uh, my chain of command was complicated in that i had two lines of responsibility my military line of responsibility was directed to the commander-in-chief in germany general sir peter inge and my diplomatic responsibility was to her majesty's ambassador in, in bonn to christopher malaby uh, who luckily I'd known since I was a child, which actually was a help. And so um, all the reports that were put together from Berlin uh, on the diplomatic side were um, signed by me. Uh, but they were put together for me, uh, largely. I mean, I obviously had some input into them, and I would never sign anything that I wasn't happy about myself. But they were put together for me by my... Uh, political by my diplomatic staff and, and overseen by a minister, Michael Burton, who was my uh, deputy. And so um, I had those, those two lines of responsibility, which could actually have caused confusion, but because everybody involved was being very sensible about it, that didn't happen. And the other interesting and very important thing was that we were allowed to get on with it and make it work. Uh, which is so often the secret of life, and so we did get on with it. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, I can say that we, we did make it work. So, um, yeah, frankly, you know, things like, for example, my experience at St. Hedwig's um, with that wonderful service, 
you know, I got lots of thanks for for something interesting, but it, it didn't go for the price of fish, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. But then that's the story of life, really, and the story of the, of the, of the world. And, and I wasn't convinced myself. I couldn't have been convinced at that stage. I mean, I could not possibly, if, if I'd... You know, if I'd been a magician, then that would have been a different story. But, you know, I couldn't be convinced that things were changing. In fact, I did give one or two, one quite well-publicized talk quite early on uh, when I did uh, say that I thought that change was going to happen, um, which caused quite a, it caused quite a stir at the time. But, um, you know, nothing more than that. Yeah. And much more of a star locally in Berlin than it did back home. Yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting question. So the answer is, yeah, well, really, you know, I think people had other things to think about. And I think it goes back to that thing that Sir Jeffrey Howard said, no, no change. Yeah. You know, we got so used to it all being set in GDR concrete that, you know, no one expected it to. Exactly. That wall looked like it was going to be there for 100 years or, 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 or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Now, as the the demonstrations started in East Germany... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Were you having to prepare for different scenarios as to how that might turn out in Berlin? Yes, yes, very, very, very much, very much so. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And, and um, yes, we were. We were watching very carefully what was happening. And as the violence began to increase, particularly in the great industrial cities, in the southern part of the GDR, in Dresden and Leipzig especially, which then moved very rapidly right the way up through Germany, right up to Rostock on the Baltic, washing against the eastern side of East Berlin. We were really watching it very carefully because we were concerned uh, that the situation, particularly in East Berlin, might have turned violent. In which case, what were we going to do? Had we, for example, been confronted with people trying to flee across the wall into what they might have seen as the safety of the West, perhaps being fired at at the same time, what were we going to do about it? Well, we were going to try and protect them using armored vehicles and that sort of thing. But, but we can, you and I can both see the huge complications and potential difficulties inherent in that. But that was what we were going to try and do. But thank heavens, it, it didn't come to that. But if it had done, yes, I mean, that was one of the things around which our contingency planning was based. Very tense at times. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't have crossed into East Berlin? Definitely not. At all, no. Definitely not. Not under any circumstances, no. We would have held up, we would have done our best to hold our line, but that would have been it. No, we would absolutely not have done that. Yeah. Uh, and where were you when you heard that 
the wall had been opened. <laughs> that a, that a, it's so funny that this illustrates some of the ridiculous things that I was expected to do as the British commandant. You know, I was opening, would you believe it? I was opening a radio station. It's called Hundred Commas X, and it, I think it was owned by a fellow called Ulrich Shamoni. He was probably a complete rascal for I know, but he'd asked if I would go and open his darn radio station. So I was doing that, just exactly that. Uh, when all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my driver, who was a wonderful, very good soldier, Corporal Burnell, Martin Burnell, literally running across the room, this great big rope hall where this opening was going on. Sir, sir, I need to talk to you. Uh, something very important and urgent is happening. We need you back. Uh, we, need, we need to get you on the radio. So I bade farewell to Mr. Shimoni and, and made a dignified exit. Got into the back of my car where I had an, un, an insecure radio telephone. And, and Michael Burton, my minister, was there. And he said, Robert, Robert, they're coming across. I said, Michael, calm down. Just be quiet. Who's coming across? Thinking, you know, <laughs> this is the opposition. And he said, no, I think the world's breaking open. So I said, right, well, I'll be back in the headquarters in 15 minutes. In the meantime, will you please get started on all the contingency plans that we've made? Will you start putting them into effect? I'll be with you as soon as I can. And that was the beginning of probably the, the busiest period I've ever had in, in my life, I think. And, and one of the most complicated, too. Right. So that, <laughs> that is ridiculous, isn't it? But that's how it happened in my case. For a split second when he said they're coming over, did you think it was an invasion? Well, I mean, you know, I had to ask him, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Coming, I said, Michael, who's <laughs> coming over? Oh, gosh. Uh, and he said, no, don't, don't worry. I think the walls come, walls yeah. break open. And, you know, I didn't know what he was talking about. But he was in a state of, of um, well, he was a very, very special and bright man, you know, but he was definitely... Um, yeah, something important was happening, that's for sure. Very important. And when you got back to your headquarters, presumably the phones were going crazy and London was trying to get hold of you. And Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> you know, everybody knew what to do, actually. And then I began, you know, a very busy time um, seeing that everything was going the way that I had hoped it would go. And I think you may know the story about what happened in the early hours the following morning. I don't know if you know about this or not, but I yes. was well aware of the fact that the Soviets essentially were hated by the people of East Berlin. They didn't like them at all. And by midnight, there were tens of thousands of people, it was a bit like Bournemouth Beach, uh, milling around, um, particularly on the western side of the Brandenburg Gate, who come through the open um, barriers. And uh, I was well aware of the fact that that great Soviet memorial to their dead in the Great Patriotic War, which they built on purpose to have a foothold in the West, right beside the Brandenburg Gate, using material from Hitler's chancery, that that garrison they had in there, which was a platoon of 32 men under a senior lieutenant, equivalent of Bichon, they were captain, might be in some jeopardy. So um, I, I had jurisdiction over the West Berlin police and, and asked ordered, really, I suppose, the, the president of the Berlin police, Georg Skaps, who actually was, I got on very well with, I knew him well. I said, no, please, will you make sure that under no circumstances can that memorial be interfered with? Because if it is, the consequences could be very serious. So get on and do that now, will you please? 
and there was the other on the other end of the telephone, I suppose. And about three o'clock in the morning, when I'd been going around trying to get a real handle on everything that was going on, and obviously seeing our people who were on duty, I went to the guardroom there, where there was a Soviet sentry on duty who had a, a photograph of me in his box. He went absolutely white as white, got on the hand crank telephone, and his officer came running uh, at a run. I can't speak Russian, but um, luckily he had a German-speaking dolmetscher, a translator, with him. And I said to this young fellow, you know, I come in, I want to tell you as far as I can what's going on. And you could see the relief flooding into his face as I told him, you know, that please, whatever else, do not worry. Uh, your memorial for which you're responsible will not, under any circumstances, be interfered with. I won't allow that to happen. And then I said, may I come and talk to your soldiers? And he looked rather surprised, but he said, yes, give me a moment. And I went in, I've been back since into the guardroom there, which is a, quite a large sort of square room. And the, he'd drawn up his soldiers in, in a, a half square, and there was a chair for me, uh, on which I sat, and he stood on my right, and the translator stood on my left. And for 20 minutes, we and these soldiers spoke about the things that are of interest to soldiers when they're serving in a foreign land. What's training, what's the training like? Uh, what's it like living here? How do you find things? And then I said, I must go back now. I have to get back to my headquarters. But you are not to fear because you will not be interfered with and all will be quiet and well. And he weren't, And when I went out, he'd got his men around the outside and they did that thing the Soviets do. I, I think you've seen it. They put their arms up in a flat and then they turn and look at you as you march past them. And they all saluted me, and I went to the gate with him, doing that sort of march that they do, and uh, shook his hand and said, uh, all will be well. And I've been in my car. For, can you hear me all right? Yeah, no, keep going. I mean, this is an extraordinary story. It is an extraordinary story. I've been in my car on my way back to my headquarters for about 10 minutes, something like that. When I got a message from Brigadier Yantria, who was the chief of our um, mission, Dixmas, to the Soviets, saying, I need to see you urgently, General. Something very remarkable uh, has just happened. And I said, well, you can say that again. There's a lot of very remarkable going on around here. And he was looking for me on the steps of the headquarters. And he said, you're not going to believe this. But using a chain of channel of communication that has been closed uh, since the problem uh, in 1948, it's an old thing, but it's working again, has come this message for you by name, and that in itself was unique. By name from General Army General, General of the Army, Boris Snetkov, again by name, has come this message. Thank you for what you have done. It will not be forgotten. And thereafter, the most extraordinary series of things began to happen. I had a hell of a problem with the Soviets because uh, I'd been putting ropes and ladders into the spray to enable uh, refugees to get out of the water more urgently and more easily. And they had, uh, through Hanukkah, had complained very strongly to them. And the Soviets had told me to get them moved, and I paid no attention to them. All that difficulty just went straight out of the window. And I think the really important point about this is that had there been shooting around that memorial, and the Soviets were notoriously trigger happy, they'd killed Major Arthur Nicholson, not that uh, of the Soviet of the United States mission, not that much earlier. Well, he'd been shot dead. Um, you know, had they had they been shooting around that memorial, where 
would it ever have ended? And it was so easy to do something and take the sting out of something like that. But I've often thought about it and often thought that maybe what happened there, although it seemed like plain common sense at the time, maybe it could have been very important. I don't know. I think it was probably. What do you think? I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, people forget the the proximity of that war memorial. And I think previously some neo-Nazi had opened fire on the Soviet honor guard some years before as well. So they killed a sentry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, much earlier on, it caused the most terrible international incident. That um, sudden sniper hiding in the woods just opposite. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying it either seriously wounded or killed it, killed one of the Russian sentries. Right, right. I wasn't exactly sure of those circumstances. But, you know, during that night, and as we spoke before, everything was such a fluid situation that yeah. some gunfire by the Brandenburg Gate and you know the board the border guards might have thought they were under fire and you know yeah. it, it could have set off a a huge catastrophe there so i think it it absolutely was a a key moment that night it might have been anyway that that's what happened and um i've often thought about it i think it you know, it's quite a sort of salutary memory that particular one the, uh, the young Soviet, uh, he was a, the equivalent of a British Army captain. He had 32 men in his guard. They're magnificent people they were, really, to be honest with you. And he was a really fine young man. There was absolutely nothing wrong with him. I mean, he was a good, straightforward young soldier. And uh, it, it was very important, I think, to try and deal with him on a proper, sensible, soldierly basis. Yeah. And that was really what I was trying to do. Yeah, and give them confidence that they they were going to get looked after. They weren't going to be forgotten about. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we we spoke there briefly about the the East German border guards. How how did the the British Army's relationship with them change in the in the next few days? Because I know the Royal Military Police were mainly patrolling the border in in the British sector. How did that relationship change? Yes, we used, and I wanted it to be like this. I, uh, we used the Royal Military Police, who'd been up against the line of the wall, always in inverted commas. We used them um, as a kind of front line rather than presenting uh, a whole lot of rather heavily armed British infantrymen. That wouldn't have been the right thing. Uh, and they did it extremely well. In fact, uh, the Dario commander of the Royal Military Police, Ron Tilson, he got a, an, an OBE, deservedly, as a result of it. And I think the GDR border guards, to start with, were completely confused uh, and didn't really know which way to look. And then began to realize, you know, that uh, the, the situation was, was going to um, develop and be handled peacefully, and, and therefore they began to relax, if that's the right way to put it. I mean, I'll tell you, my beloved wife, Susie, who had a lovely man who was her driver and had a little truck, and she went down to the little enclave of Steinstrucken, and down there the wall was in absolute bits. And she thought, well, I'd like to take a bit of this wall back and give it give it to, to me. I think she probably did. So she was trying with her driver to manhandle this huge chunk of wall, 
when a young man in jeans came up to her and said, can I help you, um, please? And she said, yes, please do. And they got in the back of the truck. And Susie, my wife, said to him, now, do you mind telling me, I mean, what's your job? What are you doing? <laughs> and he said, until two days ago, I was a border guard. <laughs> so you see what I mean? I mean, the whole thing really had begun to come apart completely at the seams. Um, but to start with, I think they were very confused, and 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 uh, we were quite lucky, really. We didn't very lucky, didn't turn to violence. And and great credit, I think, really, in a way, to the self-discipline of the German people that that was the way it was. And then, secondly, they began to sort of relax, you know, and people put flowers in the barrels of their rifles and all the rest of it. And it all it all sort of um, became really quite calm. And I remember going across, actually, I think I went across, Princess Alexandra came to stay, and I took her across the Brandenburg Gate then, and, and we met, we were met by all sorts of people, including the commander of the Grinstruppen um, at the Brandenburg Gate. I got a photograph of him, and he was the most agreeable fellow. <laughs> and there was, a, there was another one who was, who was, I think his deputy, who was a a, a graph, in other words, a count von Steinitz. I mean, he was a slightly smart fellow, and he was the sort of second in command of the of the Grenzstruppen at the Brandenburg Gate. I mean, the whole thing was quite extraordinary. But by that stage, they were, you know, they were seeing, they, they knew the way the wind was playing, and they were being very relaxed. Yeah, and, and how were the Soviets reacting to this? Um, I, it's very interesting to to, to really try and, and get a feel for what was going on. They didn't change their alert states insofar as we were aware, but they too were completely confused to start with. And I think what they saw happening was what they would perhaps have regarded as the fruits of their victory in the Great Patriotic War, what they called the Second World War, as you know. Mm-hmm. I think that they could see the fruits of that victory beginning to slip between their fingers, and they were distinctly unhappy about it. But they were unhappy in a kind of confused way rather than anything else. And as I said, I don't think we didn't see any sign of their alert states changing or them becoming more aggressive or anything like that. Possibly rather the opposite, but that was why... Something like what, well, you know, what that thing that I, little thing I did beside the Brandenburg Gate was so crucially important, actually, as a way of showing them that we meant them no ill will, despite everything that had happened. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I think I think you're right. It might have had wider consequences from beyond that night in in terms of them realizing yeah that you weren't intending to cause them any harm and that you were fellow soldiers absolutely and of course the thing is i think many of them would have wanted to hark back to the fact that in the second world war against the nazi the menace of nazism and the disaster of nazism we had in fact despite all the problems that had happened from stalin onwards from the end of the second world war being you know, on the other other side, on the other side of the great divide, as between communism and and uh, the Western world, but I think soldiers like that could see that we had been comrades in arms in inverted commas, mm. right? Difficult and you know, darn complicated and 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 um, often uh, extremely controversial. But but I, I think that played its part as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think I, I, I think you're right. You're right there. But is that kind of, you know, there's that kind of, it's not exactly a bond between people who are enemy and enemies, in theory, at least what we were, potentially at least. But there is a, a kind of, um, can be a kind of mutual respect, which can actually be something on which you can usefully build. I, th- I think you're right using the word respect. I think that 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 mm. that's what it is, and and in Berlin especially, being still yeah. four occupying powers, you can yeah, use right. that World War Two Great Patriotic War link yeah. to um, underline that. But it is so extraordinary when you think that we arrived as Besatzungs as um, occupying powers. And, and because of the 1948 Berlin airlift, in which we actually sacrificed more of our airmen than, than, the, than the other two, the French were on their knees, they couldn't help, but then mm. more than the Americans. And we became friends. Uh, and eventually, of course, once that had happened, well, we became protectors first, and then we became friends. And, and that was the way it was as between we allies in West Berlin in a way that you never found in the Federal Republic of Germany at all. The Germans didn't want us there, didn't understand why we were there, didn't like us driving tanks across their fields and having soldiers going down, having a good time in their towns and misbehaving sometimes. Didn't want us there, but in Berlin, they really did want us there. They knew why we were there. We had saved them when uh, you know they needed to be saved. Uh, we had protected them, uh, and we had become friends. That's the West Berliners. Yeah, uh, and uh, so that you know that that was always, I think, to me, very clear. And the fact that you know, I still every birthday, and I I still get messages from from people in West Berlin saying thank you. How about that? Yeah, no, that's amazing. I think Ian mm. Ian was telling me you still get gifts from Russia as well. <laughs> Not many. Not now. <laughs> but I did. I mean, I've still got, still got some amazing, amazing things they gave me. They were not able to give much, but what they gave was very interesting and, and um, you know, really um, actually good to have. Yeah. I'm afraid there's none of the vodka left. Oh well. <laughs> uh, what what was the the final ceremony at Checkpoint Charlie like? That was quite um, uh, wonderful. We all had to sort of say something. Um, we three Allied commandants had to say something, um, and then the foreign secretaries. We we had Douglas Hurd, who was a brilliantly clever man, and, and so you know, so nice to deal with as well. Secretary of State Baker from the United States, who likewise, absolutely charming guy. Roland Dumas from France, who got the sack um, fairly shortly afterwards. I think he'd been found in the wrong bed or something like that. <laughs> and Hans-Dietrich Genscher, who by that stage had already been foreign minister, secretary of, of um, Germany for seven years. Sharp as a weasel he was. So they were all there, and they all had something to say. And uh, it was an American ceremony because, it, as you know, Felix Schlosser was in the American sector. So it was led by the Americans, but be- beautifully done. And for some reason or another, beforehand, um, the foreign secretary then of the Soviet Union still was Edvard Shevardnadze. And he arrived early. And so I, for some reason or another, I was put with an interpreter. 
into a side room just off uh, where just off where the hut was, and sort of told to get on and talk to him. Well, I wasn't told that, but it was obvious what I had to do. And he was absolutely charming and fascinating about the two plus four talks and the situation in in uh, um, the situation in Europe. And uh, I really, and he was more than that. He was he was a very nice guy to talk to. But there were two things about it. The first was, and I think this was an indication of the kind of pressure that everybody was under. He was physically, I thought, and probably mentally also completely exhausted. And that was very evident. And secondly, I noticed, because all soldiers are trained observers, that his shoes were worn down to within about a centimeter of the uppers at the back. Again, an indication of the kind of pressures that everybody was under. Now, that's just a little vignette of the sort of things that were going on at that time. But it's all part of the sort of um, extraordinary experience that this whole thing was. Yeah, yeah, it must have been quite a, a moving moment when you the, the flag was hauled down in the British sector and the British troops left. Well, as you probably, again, know, uh, the, the, the federal the German authorities asked us to leave troops in um, West Berlin, in Berlin, uh, in, in reunited Berlin, until such time as the Soviets had withdrawn. Uh, the Russians, right. actually, I one could say, and the Soviets had withdrawn, and so we left the brigade there. Uh, so after I left, what happened was that with the handing over of the rights and responsibilities whereby West Berlin had been governed in the post-war period, as a result of the confirmation of Potsdam, July 45. Once those rights and responsibilities had been signed away as they were by us in the German parliament, they were signed by me first on behalf of the Allies, and I was the one who had to make the speech um, of farewell in the parliament, because it so happened that I was the chairman commandant just by chance. Once that had happened... We three generals had no more role to play, so we had to withdraw. We withdrew with great ceremony. They had wonderful farewells for us. Very touching they were, and lovely parades and all the rest of it. But we went, and once we had gone, troops remained, but remained under a completely different status status of forces, absolutely without the authority that had been vested in the three of us. The other thing, Ian, is that, you know, one shouldn't forget the role that was played by our servicemen and women over all those, what, four and a half long decades we, we stood by Berlin. And the fact that we did meant that the problem of the division between East and West, while the problem of Berlin, which was encapsulated really in what was happening in Berlin, was unresolved, uh, you know, the fact that we stood by Berlin the way we did I think it's great credit to those soldiers and and um, and, and and their families. I, I really and the diplomats too. They were bloody good. The diplomats, they really were. Diplomats sometimes, uh, you know, in our experience, have a reputation for being a little bit wishy-washy. But my diplomats were absolutely excellent. And the thing is, they weren't just very intelligent people, but they were very robust as well, which was exactly what was needed. You're lucky. And and I think you're right in, in terms of there were so many ways that the Berlin situation could have gone wrong, not just in 1989, but in other moments. And by the the skill and diplomacy, it didn't. 
We don't want to talk about General Clay tonight, but that confrontation at Checkpoint Charlie in 61 was... Uh, yeah, that was very dodgy. It only, would only have taken, it would only have taken a mistake by some young officer, and those tank main armaments were loaded. It would only have taken that, and we'd have been away, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned earlier when we were talking that you had some stories about German reunification that you think might not have been heard yes i i will i will tell you about this um again i tell you another thing about the ceremony the farewell ceremony in the berlin parliament um in my speech of farewell i used a, a, a phrase i was speaking in german but i used a phrase that had been used by winston churchill in one of his uh, almost immediate post-war speeches at the year after the end of the Second World War. And in this speech, he said, the division of Germany is a tragedy which cannot endure. And I think he was right, actually, but that's what he said. And I was able to say, aber die Tragödie sit vorbei. The tragedy is now over. And as I said those words, I looked up, and there, sitting 12, 14 feet away from me in the front row, was the the man who'd been the great governing mayor of West Berlin, uh, Willy Brandt, when the wall was put up in 1961, the first time I ever saw Berlin, and the tears were absolutely pouring down his face. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live, because in that was encapsulated so much, really, so much of the suffering that had gone on before, and so much hope for the future. And, you know, that's, this is not something that's generally known about. But, you know, what an experience for someone like me. I'll tell you something else, too. That we, I, Susie and I were invited, um, because I was the chairman commandant at the time, to stand on the dais at the moment of German reunification at midnight on the 2nd, 3rd of October in 1990. And this was a moment when a huge German flag, biggest thing you've ever seen, was hauled up to the top of the... 100-foot-high flagpole that had been put up in front of the Reichstag building. And at that moment, as that flag was hauled up, and we were standing right beside, behind uh, Chancellor Coe, with one accord, there were over a million Germans in the low ground in front of that building. They began to sing Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. And we were the only foreigners, the only non-Germans standing on that dais. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live. And I tell you what, the hairs went up on the back of my neck. And I don't mean that negatively, really. You know, it was a great moment. But my goodness me, that was a moment of history if ever there was one. And then um, walking back through the restored Reichstag, the beautifully restored Reichstag building afterwards, I found myself walking beside Chancellor Code, who's a great big tall man, and to be polite, I said, Jim Chancellor, may I congratulate you on this great moment for the German people, because that's exactly what it was. And he looked down at me, and I thought, oh, God, you know, I said something I shouldn't have said. And he smiled, and he said, Commandant, we could never possibly have done this without you allies. Now, you just imagine that coming from a proud German. And for me who'd been in Berlin as a young soldier all those long, long years before, I tell you something, 
the wheel had really come round full circle. Quite extraordinary. And uh, what an amazing experience. What an amazing thing to have been involved in. And uh, I sometimes think back to back. I sometimes think back on it now, as you can imagine. But I think nowadays my main thought is one of relief that something that could well have turned to terrible violence passed off as peacefully as it did. Because it was without doubt one of the most important moments in the, certainly in the latter part of the history of the last century. No, absolutely. And Sir Robert, that is a brilliant piece to finish on. I am so, so grateful for your time tonight and talking to me. Those images you've painted are excellent. I mean, they they really do bring it home and the listeners will be so pleased that you shared these and I'm honoured to have recorded them as well. If I may say so, it's excellent what you're doing. And, um, you know, this is history that you're recording. And, um, you know, I'm not going to be around. I'm very lucky still to be alive anyway. I'm not going to be around for that much longer. And if you've got it somewhere in a can, then it is history, isn't it? It it is. It is. It is indeed. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Special thanks to Jeffrey Jones and Nicholas Butter who are supporting us with $30 per month. 
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.